0: Of course, it is Father's Day, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about fathers to you. Um, but this is a message that isn't just for the fathers in this room, it's not just for even the men in this room, it's for everybody. Uh, but I want to hit a few things that I feel like kind of define fathers. But it, really, ultimately, every relationship that God has instituted and created, whether it's the marriage relationship a parent-to-child relationship, family, friends, within all of that, God has really prophetically given us a picture of the ideal that we find in him. So let's just take marriage, for example. The Bible tells us that marriage is to be a, really a declaration, a picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, that he is purchased with his own blood. As God took, Adam, took Adam's wife from his side, the church was birthed as Jesus' side was pierced. We have been purchased with the blood and water that came from his body on the cross. We have been redeemed. And so we find a lot of times that earthly relationships can you know, be good, but also some are all the time inferior in many ways. And because of that, they're ultimately to be a picture of what we need to find in our Heavenly Father in God. And so I want to highlight something. My title comes from a statement that we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 4. And we'll start in verse 14, and this is the Apostle Paul, who was never married and never had children, and yet he was a father to many people. He impacted them, and while he was never a natural father, he was a spiritual father. And for many of us who've had, you know, natural children, one of the privileges of my life is to have three beautiful kids, uh, two boys and a little girl, and every day I feel like I learn something new, and every day I feel like I need to learn much more, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just—it's such a privilege, but at the same time, we find that uh, God has called each of us to not only really father the next generation, to impact the next generation. As a church, we're called to impact a generation that's coming after us, but we're also called to receive and experience the love and grace and, and truth that comes from our Heavenly Father. And I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, I don't write these things to you to shame you. So he had corrected them in the previous verses. He says, but I don't write this to you to shame you, to bring shame to you, to, to discourage you, but as my beloved children. This is Paul talking to Christians, to the Corinthian church that he had helped begin. He says, I write to you as my children, and here's what I'm doing. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. I, I, I'm not after this shame game. I'm after trying to help you. I'm after trying to warn you. And he says, for though you might have 10,000 teachers or instructors in Christ, he says, you have not many fathers. That's the title of today is not many fathers. Uh, you know, anybody who's had kids... And has experienced anything in our families. We all come from different families. They all look different, but everyone has a father. Uh, Everyone had a dad, at least, and, you know, sometimes we have dads biologically, but not fathers by character. Are you with me? And it takes more than just having a child to 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 be a father. It takes the character. It takes the faithfulness. It takes the hard work. And, you know, I just want to say we're so proud of every every man, every father, every husband that's in here that you could have been fishing. You could have been, you know, watching sports. You could be doing anything today, but you are leading your family in the things of God. You're sitting in church, receiving from God, modeling something that your family needs. Listen to me. There's nothing more important that you can do as a father, even more important than teaching your kid how to throw a baseball, even more important than paying for their College, even more important than anything you do, is leaving a spiritual inheritance for your kids. Is modeling, listen, church, come on. That's the most important thing you can do as a father. My greatest responsibility as a dad is not just to teach my kids information, because Paul says you have a lot of instructors. We, we have a lot of people in our lives, whether as Christians or just as men and women in life, we have a lot of voices and opinions. We have a lot of people telling us what to think, what to do, uh, what's wrong, what's, what's right. But at the same time, he says there's something different about a father. He says you have 10,000 instructors, but not many fathers. Instructors and teachers can give information about what they know, but a father imparts who they are. A father gives of themselves, gives their life, gives their, who they are, because here's the thing I found out, is those that I impact, and this is for men and women, you have an influence in somebody's life, and more than what you tell them, who you are is going to impact their life more than anything you'll ever say. I can preach a thousand sermons, but what actually changes a life is what I live. Come on, guys. I can say what somebody should do. I, should, I can tell my kids how they should live or how they should follow God. But ultimately, what really affects them is who I am. Because as a father, I'm taking personal responsibility. A teacher can be somebody, anybody, just a voice that speaks into somebody's life that can be a voice for hire, that can be there because of what they benefit from. But a father gives not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of those that they're pouring into their own life. And so I want my kids to come to God not in spite of me, but because of me. I don't want them to get over have to get over my life and go, Well, well that, you know, obviously I've been perfect as a father, but listen, I want my kids to come to God because of my life, because of my example, not that they have to get over that to come to Jesus. Are you with me? Okay. So let's look at this. Paul goes on and he says this. He says, for though you might have 10,000 instructors, yet you don't have many fathers. For in Christ, I have begotten you through the gospel. So he says, I'm your spiritual father because it's through my word, my example, my message that you believe. So he says in verse 16, therefore I urge you, imitate me. Imitate my way of life. Imitate my example, who I am. Uh, Verse 17, for this reason, I have even sent Timothy to you who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. So Timothy was one of Paul's spiritual sons. And he sends him, and here's why. He says, he will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in the church. Now today I want to give you four points about what fathers do. And again, this is a message in part directed to fathers, but this is for everybody because ultimately, while all of these are things we're meant to get from our fathers in the natural, and we're to, as fathers, give to others, As as a generation of believers, we're to pass on to the next generation. These are also things that every one of us have to get from our Heavenly Father. And I want to start with the first one because I feel like this is the most important, or at least if it's not the most important, it's one of the most important. And my first point is this. Number one, fathers give identity. Fathers give identity. The Bible says of believers that that we've been named, that all of us as the church, the people of God, had derive our name From our heavenly Father. That's in Ephesians, as Paul prays for the church. He says every every believer is named by their Father, and so we have an identity that comes through a name. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, I got we got our name really in prayer as God spoke to for our kids. We have our three children. And that was important, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking at a baby name book and trying to find, you know, uh, what's current, what's, you know, popular. I've always, it's always funny to me how I've had friends that I've counseled who are like, you know, I want to name my kid this, but all my other friends want to name their kid that, and, and I just can't do it. I said, listen, you're going to have that kid longer, they're going to probably have that friend, so don't worry about it. <laughs> And so name the kid whatever you want to name the kid. But, but it's important that we understand because a name is significant. And it's not just the name we are given at our birth. But, you know, in, in the Old Testament when somebody was named, the, the word for, in Hebrew for to name is uh, Shem, which literally means to brand somebody. And oftentimes a name prophesied who they would be or described who they were. And so a name was not a light thing. It was not a simple thing. It was a powerful prophetic thing because that name assigned identity. I want to give you a few verses related to this. Genesis thirty-five eighteen tells us the story of uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel who has her last son, her last child, and she has a, a, a horrible pregnancy, delivery, everything, and she ends up dying in childbirth, the Bible says. And as she's about to give birth to this child, in her pain and in her sorrow, she speaks a name over this child that really is not a blessing but a curse. And she names him Ben-Onai, which in Hebrew means son of my sorrow. She names him from her pain. And this is important because many times we've received an identity that comes sometimes from our parents, our families, our friends, sometimes just from the world itself. We've been given an identity that isn't a blessing, but it's a curse. We have a society that names people, brands people based on their, their, their desires or their urges or their attractions and says, this is who you are instead of what God says you are. We have a society that, and people that name people by their, by their actions or even their, their, their addictions. And we're branded by things. We, we carry a name. And he, keep that verse up. He was named for the sorrow of the previous generation. He, he, was, he was named after, branded with something that was a curse. But I, I love this story because in this story, the father is a man named Jacob who has lived his entire life with a name that means supplanter. He's lived his entire life with a name that signifies unhealthy behavior. And he's honestly lived that out until God got a hold of him and changed his name from Jacob, supplanter, to Israel, prince with God. God changed his name, and he said, no, I've lived my whole life with a curse. I'm not going to let my son be named Ben Onai son of my sorrow so he changes the name to Benjamin which means son of my right hand. He says I'm not going to let this name be a stigma he's going to carry. And that's what our heavenly father does. Whatever identity you've carried, God comes along and says, "No, that's not what the what the world has said you are is not your name. You're not your past. You're not your history. You're not your failure. You're not what your flesh has dictated. You're what God speaks to and promises and prophesies over your life. We need more than ever before a generation of people that say, I want to discover what God has said about me and I want to live for that. Ephesians chapter one, verse five says this, that God predestined, chose us beforehand to adoption. Adoption was a Roman idea that meant literally to do this. It meant to take somebody and placed them as a son or daughter in the house. And when they were adopted, they weren't just considered lesser sons or daughters, they were given the full rights and privileges of a natural born child. And Jesus, the son of God, the Bible tells us became the son of man. And he did this to die on a cross to take our sins, to take our old name, our old nature, our old identity. And he nailed it to a tree. And then he rose again and invited us to experience life in him so that the sons of men could be sons of God, adopted into the family of God. You and I have been adopted, chosen, loved. We were once forsaken. We were once broken. We were once forgotten. But God brought us into his family. I love this. It says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So it's his grace that's done this, adopted us, according to, watch this, by which he made us accepted. I want you to say that word, accepted. Accepted. You are accepted in the Beloved, capital B, that's Jesus. You have been brought into Christ, and because of that, you are accepted in him. You know, so many times I feel like we live as orphans even though we have a Father in heaven. And I, I had God challenge me on this in an area of my life not long ago where, where I, was, I was living in a place where there was, just in my own heart, there were relationships and certain things where I'm like, well, God, why isn't this working, and why isn't that friendship working, and, and these things, I'm looking for certain things and affirmation in certain uh, relationships, and God speaks to me and says, you're living like an orphan. And immediately, I'm like, wow, what are you talking about, God? What do you mean? You know, I've been a Christian a long time. I've been in ministry a long time, and God highlighted something because, listen, when we look at our lives, all jealousy comes from a spirit of being an orphan. All all feelings of rejection come from feeling like an orphan because we're looking for people to give us what only God our Father can give us. If you feel rejection... In your relationships, especially if you feel, because so many people I feel like are stuck in a cycle of this. They live in persistent rejection. Not even because people are rejecting them in actuality, but because they, they're, they're so afraid of being rejected, they can't have a relationship. They, they can't have healthy relationships I'm going to hurt you before you can hurt me. We live in jealousy of other people, of other Christians, of other believers, of other families. We have the social media generation where all we do is compare ourselves to everybody else's highlight reel, to everybody else's best picture they portray to the world. Yeah, they show you all the workout stuff, but they didn't show you the tub of ice cream last night they ate. Okay. We, we have this, we, we live in comparison. We see their perfect family on, you know, they took their Father's Day picture and we, we're just trying not to kill our kids today. Just get in the car, smile when we take the picture. Like, come on. Like, we're just, and, and we compare ourselves because we're living like orphans, not realizing we've been made accepted in God. And that means that while we want people to like us, we don't need people to like us. <laughs> You know, there's a difference. I can want people to like me. God's created you with a need for, you know, nobody's an island unto themselves. That's why he's got, given us his family in the church. We should be the most encouraging people, the most loving people. We should be there to fight for each other, stand with each other, walk with each other. But we also have to realize that if we have a hole inside of us that we're not letting God fill, there's no relationship on this planet that can fill it. There's no amount of money or position or time. Reti- if I just have that, then I'll be accepted. No, your identity doesn't come from the stuff. Some of you that are retired, your identity came from a job, and now that you don't have that job, you don't know who you are. Some of you, your identity came from your, your children, and then they grew up, and then they moved out of the house, and now your identity is no longer there. It seems like it's no longer there because you derived it from something for, that was there for a season, Anything you derive your identity from that's anything other than who God is and what he said over you will leave you empty. Okay. So our identity has to come from our Father in heaven. I love this. We, we are accepted by God. We don't have to live in jealousy and rejection and all that garbage. You know, that stuff is actually, the Bible says that's earthly, sensual, and demonic. <laughs> To compare ourselves, to strive after other stuff and people and all those things. It's just okay. So I want you to see this number two. This is a, this is an important one. Fathers not only give identity, but they also do something that I feel like we've lost in a generation. Fathers correct in love. Fathers correct in love. Um, we are we are the participation trophy generation. <laughs> Can I preach this this morning? Be, and because of that, we are spent our entire lives. Many times, when we live in that environment, we spend our entire lives feeling like we're owed something, but we're never changed by Him. And then we get into churches and we wonder why 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 am I not the center of attention? We get into jobs and we wonder why is my boss not you know coddling me today, patting me on the back, telling me I did a great job. I, None of you guys. I'm talking about other people that didn't come to church today. Okay. I want to read from, uh, this is the Passion Translation, 1 Corinthians 4.15. You can put that on the screen. Um, For although you could have had countless babysitters in Christ telling you what you're doing wrong, he says, you don't have many fathers that correct you in love. He says, but I'm a true father to you. So fathers have a responsibility to correct, to bring guidance. You know, David, as we'll see in a moment, King David was in one respect a shining example of what a father should be, but in some seasons of his life, he neglected to deal with his own heart issues, ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba. Pastor uh, Ms. Ruth shared about that in Mother's Day with Bathsheba and, and David, and it's such a powerful story. When David was supposed to be in battle, he disengaged from his purpose and opened himself up to failure and opened him up, his heart opened up to sin. And I love this story because that wasn't the end of David. But David had other mistakes too. In fact, David, one of the worst things that ever happened in his family happened because David did not correct his adult children. Because he didn't bring correction as a father when he needed to. He didn't protect part of his family, his daughter, when he needed to. She was attacked by another member of the family and assaulted. And and, and all kinds of turmoil happened because David was silent when he was supposed to speak up. And as a father, as, as a church, as a people, we have a responsibility to not be quiet but to speak the truth in love. And sometimes we disconnect this because we've lived in a society that says to be loving, you have to tolerate and accept everything. Listen, there's a difference. When we look at the world's definition of tolerance, it means acceptance. God wants us to be tolerant and love people right where they're at to bring them to him. But when we have to understand this concept, as a father, the most loving thing I could do is if my kid is playing with something dangerous If my child has a loaded weapon in their hands, the most loving thing I could do is take it out of their hands. Because I love them as a father. I care about them. I want them to be safe and protected and that's how God is towards me. See, God in our lives brings correction and this is something that isn't a bad thing, it's a necessary thing. I want you to see this, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse five says this, have you forgotten the exhortation Which speaks to you as sons. Now, just to to help you with this, ladies, you're included in the brethren, and guys, you're included in the bride, so it all works out. So when you hear sons, don't think that doesn't include me. Okay. Uh, (laughs) My son, don't despise the correction or chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son that he receives. When I, let me just pause there for a second. When I, I used to work in uh, the inner city of Phoenix, and I, I worked with some families that were many times parentless, period, fatherless in some cases, most cases, in fact, but, but parentless across the board. I had one little girl who was five years old whose mom, all year long, lived on the streets addicted to cocaine, was never home. She was raised by her, her, her family. But one of the things I found out in these fam- this family dynamic that was actually kind of interesting to me is there was one aunt in the family, and she wasn't even related to everybody, but there was one aunt who literally disciplined the entire neighborhood's kids. So I found this out because I had some kids that had some issues, and normally I would call the mom or the dad, but I, I knew in those kids, in many of these kids I worked with, they had no mom and dad there, so I called this aunt. Her name was Aunt Rosie. And I would just tell the kids, I'm going to call Aunt Rosie, and she's going to take care of this. And so that's what happened. Aunt Rosie took care of it. You know, all the kids in the neighborhood who weren't even her children. <laughs> she, she disciplined everybody. But when you think of this, as a father, what actually, I'm responsible for disciplining my kids. Amen. That's not a fun point, but it's a, it's a biblical point. And, and when we look at this, it's no different in, with God in our lives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't correct or chasten? But if you are without chastening, here's the key word, or the key phrase, of which all have become partakers, everybody that's a believer. Then if you aren't being corrected by God, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So, so here's the thing. If you feel the correction of the Holy Spirit, that's how God corrects us most often, is he corrects us by the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that tells you don't do that, don't go there, that, that, that leads you, that corrects and convicts and guides you. See, the scary thing is when I don't have that. I should actually appreciate and love that. Not that any of us like being corrected. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't like spankings. How many of you didn't like spankings besides me? Okay, uh, good, I'm, I'm not, you know. But when you look at this, God's correction is not a bad thing. It's actually a necessary thing. Because that's what actually shapes me and trains me. I want you to see this. Let's keep reading the rest of the verse. Here's why God does it. For indeed, a few days uh, we were chastened, as it seemed best to our fathers, our earthly fathers. But God does it for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. God wants us to experience his life, who he is, being set apart for him. Now, no chasing seems joyful for the moment, uh, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we look at this, God's God's correction or his his love is not something that we should pull away from. Now, here's what we have to understand, guys. As believers it's vital that we learn to hear from the Holy Spirit and we learn to allow him to correct us. There's things that I used to think were acceptable that I no longer think are acceptable, not because I I had somebody tell me, you shouldn't go there, you shouldn't watch this, it's because I had the Holy Spirit. I learned to submit my life to him and let him guide me. It sounds as if we publish a list of rules here at Church on the Rock and say, hey, don't go to these movies, don't watch these shows, don't do this, because we want you to learn to be led by the Holy Spirit because guess what? Everybody's list is different. You can drive down the street and you'll find a different list at a different church. And usually we have lists that leave out things that we we find acceptable as sins, like gossip. (laughs) Welcome to Seeker Sensitive Sunday. Thank you. I'm Pastor Brian. How many times do we tolerate certain things in our own heart, but then we judge other people? rather than submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to our Father in heaven, who guides us and corrects us and leads us to the work shaped in the image of Jesus. All right, number three is fathers lead by their life. Fathers lead by their life. As we see with Paul, Paul said, you have a lot of teachers, a lot of people telling you what to do or saying what's wrong, but you don't have a lot of people who will walk with you, who will be there for you. Who will correct you not out of just even a self-righteousness, but will correct you in love as a father does, who will get the heart of God. Uh, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he says, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Imitate me. The best message I can ever preach is my life. The best message you can ever preach to your children is your life. And it's not just your children. This applies to every area of life, guys. This is this is This is wholesale. Because the world around you, the, the unsaved coworkers, the people that you see every day, that spouse that doesn't serve God, those people around you, whoever they are, they're going to listen to what comes out of your life more than what you say. I think it was the, the political leader, Gandhi, in India that said, I would have become a Christian if I could find one. <laughs> if we look at this, you and I have to live out something. Not that we're perfect, not that we're infallible, but we have a Jesus that guides us, directs us. We have a Holy Spirit that lives within us that shapes us and imparts the life of our Heavenly Father because we have an example. Now, I love what Paul says because he says, I'm sending to you Timothy and he's gonna remind you not of my words, but of my ways. And I think that's important to distinguish that because we value words oftentimes more than our actions. I don't think any of us would agree to that verbally, but we do by our lives when we live in a way that contradicts what we say we believe. He says, I urge you to imitate me. In fact, I'm gonna send Timothy, who's walked with me for years, who's spent time with me, who's gonna remind you of my ways in Christ. So when Timothy shows up, Now, here's the way I used to read this. I used to read this as, okay, Paul's going to send Timothy, and Timothy's going to sit the church down and say, okay, guys, do you remember how Paul did this? And do you remember how Paul said that? And do you remember that one sermon that Paul preached? Do you remember those things? And, and, And here's the thing. I don't think that's how it went. I think Timothy showed up and lived like Paul lived. And as they saw Timothy live it, they go, that's how Paul was. That's what was different about Paul. That's how Paul prayed for people. That's how Paul spoke to people. That's how Paul loved or corrected or guided or pastored or whatever he did. That's how Paul lived because they saw in Timothy his father. There was something about Paul that was imparted into the life of Timothy, and Timothy imparted that into the church that he was surrounded with. See, teachers can give only what they know, but fathers impart who they are. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 11, 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me. And this is what I think is the key to Paul because Paul didn't just say follow me or imitate me. In, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. My goal in any area of life is not to have people just follow me. If as a pastor I make people dependent on me, I've missed the purpose of being a pastor. As a father, if my children have to always depend on every area of life, for me, I failed as a father. Are are, are you with me? We're always there for our kids. You know, those of you who have grown children know that, you know, your kids don't stop being your kids because they moved out. Especially if it takes them like 33 years to move out. (laughs) We'll pray for you at the end of service if that's you, okay. But when we think about this, it's, it's, my goal is to connect my kids to Jesus. My goal is to connect my wife to Jesus. My goal is to connect those that I minister to, I'm the young adults pastor here, is to get our young adults connected to Jesus. Not to my personality, not to how great I am. It's definitely not to how I dress because none of them are dressing like me yet. I don't know why. I'm, I, I was told I was supposed to do that as a young adults pastor. It's not working. But are you, are you with me? Pastor Jeremy does that for me. He's got the cool clothes. Okay. So, but when we look at this, I, my goal, my primary responsibility is to follow Jesus. In any area of life, pick one. My number one responsibility is follow Jesus. And as I follow Jesus, people can follow my example. And in so much as I'm dependent upon Jesus, following Jesus, people can follow me. And it's the same in your life. Are you doing Okay. Does it help anybody? Okay. Uh, I want you to see this. John chapter 5. I love this picture. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus blows my mind with, with some of the things he says because he makes statements that don't just challenge us, but they invite us. Jesus doesn't just say things that are challenging to us to get us out of dead religion but they're invitations to get us into something greater. And Jesus is the son of God, but as the son of man, with the Holy Spirit upon him, he modeled what the Christian life should really look like. And many times, not only did he raise the dead and heal the sick and cleanse the leper and cast out demons, but Jesus had a close relationship to his father. Jesus often withdrew, it says, into the desert, to the wilderness, to the mountaintop, wherever it was, to just be alone. A lot of us, if we could just get that one piece, it would change our whole life. Because we are so preoccupied with how busy we are, in fact, we're actually proud of it. I'm just so busy right now. I'm so busy. I know sometimes we're not always smiling when we say it. But if you, if if every time somebody asks you how you are doing, and you say busy, and, and when we think about that, so many times we're so preoccupied with stuff, even good stuff or God stuff or family stuff, that we forget to connect alone with God. And this is what Jesus said: most surely, John five nineteen. Then Jesus answered and said, most surely I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. The Son can do nothing of himself. That, to me, right there, is just blows me away. And he says, but what he sees the Father do, whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him even greater works, or show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. Now, let me just hang there for a second. Jesus says, I can't do anything on my own. That to me is amazing. So how does that relate for us? Well, Jesus tells us in Acts, or John 15, he says, apart from me, Jesus, you, that's me and you, can do nothing. See, I had a hard time with that because for a long time I tried to be something. The world tells you you've got to be something. You've got to make your own way. You got to do it. You got to strive after, it. and I believe in hard work. I'm, I'm thankful. I learned my work ethic from my dad. He's the hardest working person I know. And when he, that's important to have a work ethic, but listen, well, you have to realize there's a point at which, you, apart from Jesus, apart from God, your own abilities aren't enough. And that is not to shame you <laughs> or me. Or discourage us and say, well, we just can't. We're just religious worms and we're nothing. Let's just go home. (laughs) Sometimes people leave church feeling like that. Thank God not here. Are Are you with me? Because that's not who you are. Because that's not Jesus in you. Because he can do all things. You can do all things through Jesus, Christ, who gives you strength. It's probably one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, but do we believe it? Do we really believe that we can do nothing apart from him, but we can do anything through him? And Jesus says, I don't do anything except I see my father do it. Like, I watch him. I spend time alone with the father. I see what he's doing. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out the demons. He's doing all of this stuff. And so I'm like a good son and following my father's example. And Jesus said that's what he did. In fact, he says, guess what, guys? You're going to even see, and I love this phrase, greater works. Because that's not the only time that the gospel writer, John, mentions greater works. Are you with me? Because the next time he mentions it isn't about the son doing greater works, but about the church. A few chapters later, John 14, 12, most assuredly, there's that phrase again. I think sometimes Jesus has to say that. If you've got a King James Bible, it's verily, verily. <laughs> like, I'm driving home a point. How many times does Jesus have to say, I tell you the truth to his disciples? Sometimes I think he says that because he's letting them know, listen, guys, I know you've heard everything I've said up to this point, but this is really going to blow your mind. And you got to know this is true. Most surely I say to you, he who believes in me, is there a believer in Church on the Rock this morning? Four of you. Okay. Is there a believer in Church on the Rock this morning? Good. I was making sure I got to the right place. Okay. Okay. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. There's that greater works again. Why? Because he says, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to heaven. I'm ascending to heaven, sitting here at the right hand of God, and and here's what you're going to do, greater works. But where did the greater works come from? Are, Are you with me? What did we just read a moment ago? The son saw what the father was doing. How do I know how to be the dad I need to be, the husband I need to be, the whatever, every area of my life. How do I be the Christian I need to be? I spend time with my father. And as I spend time with my father and I submit to his correction, his encouragement, whatever he wants to bring for the day, he shows me what he's doing and then I align my life to do what he's doing. You're almost with me in this Presbyterian church. Jesus saw the father doing greater work so Jesus stepped into them And then he says, guess what, guys? You can have the same relationship because here's how you pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. He says, you go to God, and guess what? He's not just my Father, he's your Father. And you can go to God in my name, and you can do experience through greater works. But the thing that's missing many times, I think, I believe, really, is the close relationship between the sons and daughters of God and their heavenly Father. Because God Wants more than just to give us fire insurance. He wants more than just a relationship when we get to heaven. But he wants us to know him and walk with him and experience him and share him. Live it out. Reflect it to the world around us so that we can say, you know, Jesus said something. Here's another statement that blows me away. He told the Pharisees, he said, If I don't do what my father does, don't believe me. It's in the Bible. He said, if I don't don't do the works of my father, don't believe me. He was that confident that what he was doing was the father's will, because he's the son. He's he's perfectly submitted to the father. And you and I are invited. I believe the more we submit to the father, the more we're close to the father, the greater works we're gonna see in our lives. All right, number four, last point. I wanna spend a little bit of time on this as we get ready to close, but I want you to see something, John. uh, The fourth point is this. Um, Fathers leave an inheritance fathers leave an inheritance now i think it's important to prepare a natural inheritance for your kids and grandkids and that's 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 good but i think sometimes we're more focused on the money than we are even on the example we set okay i want you to see something god speaks to a man named gideon one time in judges chapter 6 to, uh, if you can put those on the screen, Judges 6, and he tells Gideon while he's in hiding who Gideon up to this point believes he's the least in his entire family. He's the least in his father's house, he's the least, his clan's the least, his house is the least, his dog's the least, like everything in Gideon's life is the lowest. And Gideon's in hiding from the enemy and in this moment that Gideon's in hiding, God comes to him and says, you are a mighty man of valor. Gives him identity, that's what fathers do. But then as we turn on in Judges 6, uh, verse 11, the angel of the Lord comes to him sitting under a tree, which belonged to Joash, and while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress, was trying to hide it, I want you to see this. No, that's the wrong verse. Let me me go down. Uh, Go down to verse 25. It came to pass the same night that he has this encounter. The Lord says to him, I want you to take your, your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and I want you to tear down the altar of Baal. And this is the statement, I want you to see this, that your father has. Get you your a mighty man of valor. You're going to be delivered for Israel. I'm going to send you to, to conquer the enemy. But before you can have victory out there, you've got to get victory in your house. And I think all of us want success and victory and whatever that looks like. We want to be successful in our businesses, in our ministries, in our families, in whatever status in life we have. And we want that, but God begins with the home. To have victory out there, God's got to give us victory in our home. And so God comes to Gideon and says, your father has an altar in the middle of the house, in the living room. And it's an altar to Baal. And he says, I want you to tear it down. Because sometimes what we inherit from the previous generation isn't something we need to pass on to the next, but something we need to confront, deal with, and tear down. Sometimes there's an altar of alcoholism that we need to confront and tear down, there's an altar of pornography that we need to confront and tear down, there's an altar of broken relationships broken marriages, broken homes, and we need to confront it and tear it down. There's an altar that says fear and anxiety. Well, I'm just, I just deal with this because my dad or my mom dealt with this. It's an altar that God says, tear it down. And so that's what Gideon does. And I love the story because Gideon goes at night. He's, he's a little bold, but he's not too bold. And he goes and he tears the altar down, and in the morning, everybody from the community comes out and goes, Hey, Joash, your kid tore down the altar to Baal. You need to do something about this. And I love what Joash does because Joash, who's had this altar, who's even worshiped at this altar, suddenly because of the boldness of one generation taking a stand, says, no, no, let Baal defend himself. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be inspired. Because, see, Joash in that moment got bold because Gideon got bold. Sometimes inheritance goes both ways, church. Some of you got parents that have yet to experience the things of God and you're gonna take a stand like Gideon and what the breakthrough you get in your generation isn't just gonna go to your kids, it's gonna go back up. It's time to tear it down. I want I, I, Just for five more minutes, I want you to get this picture. I want you to see what happens in a positive sense with this because not only do negative things get passed, but I want you to see a 2 Kings 22. I'll go through these verses quick. 2 Kings 22. I want to have some prayer time. Uh, here's what, what the Bible says of David. And this is something that's repeated multiple times throughout Scripture. David eventually got it right. David started right. He finished right. He had some messy history in between. But David was a man after God's own heart. And God said to David, because you built my house, I'm going to build your house. I'm gonna, it's never going to be a generation that goes by that you're not going to have somebody that's going to carry on your legacy that's going to be a part of this kingdom. And I want you to see this because it says David set a benchmark for every generation that came after him. When sons were wicked, it said they did not walk in their, the ways of their father David. This is hundreds of years after David's life. God measured their generation by the standard set in a previous generation. And it says, when they followed God and honored God, watch this, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. I want you to to see this. Let's keep going. Uh, 2 Kings 8.19 Even shows that God gave mercy, not just because they were worthy of it, but because David got a breakthrough that affected generations after him. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah, the tribe that David reigned over, for the sake of his servant David, as he promised to give him a lamp and sons forever. I love this. And you see this throughout this story of the kings that would come from David's line. Hundreds and hundreds of years later were affected, literally, by one generation that went after God with everything he had. Mercy was given to generations that didn't deserve it because of their father David. I want to live a life. I want us to live such a life that if Jesus tarries and we have generations after us, that God would impact those generations because of what you and I do today. You're not with me yet, church. There's there's something that you do when you show up, when you pray, when you fight, when you stand, when you believe, when you go against the grain of what the world says and you, you actually make a mark that doesn't just affect, it's not just about people even remembering this, but God sees it. And God moves in your family because you fought, because you prayed, because you got a breakthrough. <laughs> Romans 8.15, I'm gonna finish with this passage, I promise. <laughs> but I, I do want you to see this. Romans 8.15, we have a father in heaven who gives us an inheritance as well. Not only do you and I leave an inheritance for those that come after us, church, I'm so thankful. You know, I, 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 to see Church on the Rock that's been here for a generation, literally changing a generation, is still impacting children and grandchildren. Some of you have been raised in this church, some of you were saved as kids and youth in this church. Thank you to everyone who's been faithful, that's been giving, serving, praying, that's been a part of Church on the rock story for so many decades now. And he's not done. Romans eight fifteen says this, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. That's what you and I have. We're no longer orphans. We're no longer slaves to sin and fear. We've been adopted by God. The spirit himself bears witness in us that we are God's children. That's that voice inside of you that when the world says compromise, he says, no, you're more than this. You don't have to hang out with turkeys. You're an eagle. You're meant to soar with God. You're meant to live for something more. You're not meant to sell out. You're not meant to give your body away. I like this. Uh, he says, if we're children, verse 17, that we're heirs. You're an heir, guys. And you're, this, another statement, just blows me away. You're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we're on his road. People are gonna reject you like they rejected him but you don't have to live for their criticism because they didn't make you with their praise. <laughs> you know, Jesus in one week could be shouted, Hosanna, son of David, he's the king. A week later, crucify him, kill him. It didn't move him, he was the same. Okay, if you need other people's acceptance instead of God's, you'll always be changed by it. So, so he says this, he, he went a little further uh, Romans 8, 17 says this. If you're children, then heirs. Heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. Verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation, I want you to see this picture, of all creation eagerly waits for the revealing of what? Sons of God. You know, I used to read that verse and go, oh, the, the creation's waiting for the Son of God to show up. That's not what It says, The king's coming. The son is coming again. But the Bible says creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of God's kids, God's sons, God's daughters. I think it's time for us to step into who God says you are. It's time for us to allow and submit to God's correction and leading so that we can become all God has for us. It's it's time for us to be at a place where we say to God, I'm going to follow your example but I'm also gonna live it out so that people don't just hear my words, but they see my life. And I wanna do greater works because that's what you're doing, God. And we also live as people that look for and build for and pay a price. You know what an inheritance is? It's when you get for free what somebody else paid a price for. Right now, we're sitting in a church that somebody paid a price for. We are a church, a people that Jesus paid a price for. And we receive an inheritance that we didn't deserve. I want to do this. If you would stand to your feet, I'm gonna ask anybody from the worship team that can come up. I want us to pray tonight, today, excuse me. I always preach at night, so I might say tonight. Um, I want you to hang with me for just a few minutes. I tried to finish a little bit before noon so that we could have a little extended prayer time. But we'll have you out here by noon. But I want you to, I want you to really lean into this for a second. Because I want to pray for you First and foremost, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't know God, you've been far from God, maybe you once knew him, but you've just been distant, he's inviting you this morning to come close. People don't go to hell just because God is like haphazardly sending people there. People go to hell, which is a place of separation from God, because he lets us have what we've spent our life choosing. God, I don't want you now. I don't want you now. And there comes a place where we get to a point where God lets us have what we've wanted. But the good news is, no matter what your history, no matter what your past, there's a story in the Bible called the prodigal son where the son wasted everything the father ever gave him. But in the moment when the son came to his senses and ran to his father, the father wrapped his arms around him, loved him, accepted him, and restored him. What will God do today as you run to him? He accepts you. He restores you. He gives you a future and a hope.